going to get started this morning. Remember, we've been working our way through the book and uh, using the acrostic Corinthians, kind of giving you an overview of some things, some highlights in the book, kind of like we're flying over the property that we've just purchased, pointing out some things that you might like and take interest in. And then as we get into the book, we'll cover these things more in detail as we get to those chapters. And so last time we were together, we were in the letter A at the end of the word Corinthians. And I'll go back and give you the whole acrostic here in just a second. But the A stands for the attitude of victory. You remember that in the book of Corinth, in the book of Corinthians and the church at Corinth, there's a lot of issues that Paul had to correct. I mean, some gross immorality, some problems, some fighting and division, Christians taking Christians to court, people telling I'm a Paul, I'm an Apollos, and all kinds of uh, immoral things going on as well, and the abuses of the Lord's Supper and the spiritual gifts. And yet in all of these things, Paul says that he has an attitude of victory even in Corinth. And he ends the book with these words. And I want you to notice it with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. This is a verse most people know. But he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul said, I know that when I'm doing something for God, I am always abounding. Always abounding. In other words, I don't have to see the evidence of my abounding. I just have to take it by faith. One of the things that I had to get accustomed to, um, I grew up in a church that was very altar call oriented. In other words, the success or failure of the service was determined by how many people came to the altar. And uh, when I pastored a little while in Columbia, South Carolina, it was a church that did not emphasize the altar call. In fact, for someone to come forward, even when we offered the opportunity, was a rare thing indeed. So I had to get to the place where I did not judge the success of my message by how many people came forward. Of course, Liberty has an altar call, but this is not a big altar call type church. We don't use multiverse manipulation and uh, uh, psychology to try to get you to come down to the altar and pray. We just want you to take care of the issue whether you do it in your seat or do it at the front. But I had to get over the fact of judging the quality of my sermon by how many people were at the altar. Because I have to take it by faith that I'm always abounding in the work of the Lord. I know this, that if I'm doing God's work, it will abound whether I see the evidence or not. I have to take it by faith. And even as I'm teaching here in this room, this empty room, and while I can see some of you online, I have to take it by faith that the Word of God will do its work and that I'm always abounding when I am doing things for the Lord. Let me ask you, is your life an indication of always abounding? I mean, here we're in the middle of the coronavirus and all of the things that are going on all around us. And Christians have these attitudes of fear. And if you want fear, all you have to do is read social media or read the news. And fear is everywhere. But the people of God are supposed to be people who are always abounding. And I think sometimes we're not always abounding. We're borderline depression. When God wants us to live in a life of always abounding, always having that spirit going forward of, hey, our God's on the throne, he's in charge, and we are encouraged. I read a great, great tweet uh, this week as I was scrolling through some stuff, having some time on my hands. And um, uh, one of the things I'm dealing with is that preachers online are talking back and forth to each other, and some of them are fussing at people who cancel services and go online, as we have in honor of the law and in protection of our senior saints and those who could get sick, we feel it's the best thing to do. And those who are trying to have service in spite of that are 
literally calling other preachers names and saying things about them. And I even watched one video of a pastor who said, don't go online. People get accustomed to staying home and they'll quit coming to church. I don't know about you, but this staying home thing is making me want to come to church even more than I used to want to come to church. But somebody tweeted this thought and it helped me. It said, if you think that watching church online is going to destroy the church, then you don't understand this thing that Jesus built. Because there's something inside of every one of us as Christians that even though we're gathering together this morning online and discussing the things of God online, my heart wants to be with God's people. This is the best we can do right now. But just as soon as this is lifted, I promise we'll all be flocking together again. And our hearts will be always abounding whether we're apart, always abounding whether we're together, because our God is on the throne. And Paul approached even a difficult church like the church at Corinth with this attitude. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. And then in verse 9 of chapter 16, I showed you this last week. And this is just a little bit of a review, but encourages my heart. He says, Paul says, he will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. Verse 8, verse 9. For a great door and defectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. Please notice, he did not say there's a great door open unto me, but there are many adversaries. He said, and there are many adversaries. In other words, I expect the adversity. The greater the door, the greater the adversaries. But it's not stopping me because I'm always abounding in the work of the Lord. I'm not discouraged at the adversaries. I just recognize that, hey, I can expect them and they're there. So don't go through your life with the but. Go through it with the and. Hey, they're there, but the great door's there, and I'm always abounding in the work of the Lord. And so... I would ask God to encourage your heart to have this attitude of victory in the face of all the defeatism, all of the things going on all around the world uh, in the midst of all of these virus, the virus and all the other things and the hoarding and the fear and the uncertainty that Christians are to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, let's go to the letter N. I want to finish this acrostic today and move into the book a little bit. N, switch gears a little bit. N stands for negative emphasis. Negative emphasis. You will find that in the Word of God, the truth of God is always negative as well as positive. It's true we're always abounding. But it's true we also have to fix these issues that are in the church. And uh, there's a great tendency among preachers to want to be positive. Honestly, now you can certainly go online and find preachers who obviously want to be negative. They thrive off of negativity. And I've never heard a street preacher preaching on the street that was positive about anything. They were always negative. And I've been to a lot of street preaching uh, situations. But the Word of God gives both the negative and the positive. And if you read the 16 chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians, you will find negative things as well as positive things. So when I'm preaching... I want to be positive. I want to encourage you. But there's also rebuke as well as exhortation. There's also the change and repentance that needs to be brought about as well as the encouraging things. And the Word of God gives us both of those things. You need to ask God to help you be as negative and as positive as the Bible is. Because good preaching has to include both of those things. If, if you take out the negative things out of the Bible, how much Bible would you have? Which Bible would you have if you took the negative parts out of the Word of God? You'd lose a whole lot of Bible. A whole lot of Bible. Because God emphasizes the negative because the negative that drives us to Him. And so when we read 1 Corinthians and as we study 1 Corinthians, you are definitely going to see some negative things in this book. But remember, over all the negative, we are always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, for the letter S that ends our acrostic. Second coming revelations or references. There are... 
10 distinct times in the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul talks about the second coming of Jesus. And that takes 1 Corinthians 15 as one reference, because there's about 10 just in 1 Corinthians 15. But if you take 1 Corinthians 15 as one reference, there are still nine other places where he definitely talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I have found that as a preacher, that some preachers are so unsure of themselves in their eschatology, and eschatology just means the study of the last things, that they don't preach on the second coming of Christ. They avoid the book of Revelation. What they need to do is read 1 Corinthians, read 1 Thessalonians, read the book of Revelation, and understand that the second coming of Jesus Christ is an integral part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is our blessed hope. And uh, the Word of God talks about these things and gives us this. Let me show you one. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in your copy of the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, just give you this one little reference, 9 verse 24. 24. Paul makes this reference to the second coming of Jesus in the sense of our reward. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now, the Apostle Paul is comparing the Christian life to a race. It is his favorite illustration. He uses it in the book of Hebrews. He uses it in other places in the scripture as well. It's his favorite illustration. And I want you to know what he's talking about. I don't know what race brings to your mind. If you're thinking about NASCAR, if you're thinking about the Olympics, you're thinking about races on the playground. But what Paul is thinking about are the Greek games, which are a kind of like our Olympics in a sense, uh, kind of where they originated from. And Paul loves to use that illustration to illustrate the Christian life. But just remember this. No illustration is as complete as the thing it's illustrating. In other words, what's being illustrated is far greater than the illustration can give it. So let's talk about the Greek games for a second. I want to point out some things to you. I wrote some notes down about it. You can research this for yourself. It's readily available to you. But a Greek runner, if he was to win the race that he was in, he received free food rations for the rest of his life. All of his material needs would be met. He paid no more taxes. He became a national hero. He was welcomed home as a victorious general. A statue was erected in his honor. Poets would write poetry about him. And if he went to any other spectacle, he always sat in a front seat of privilege. All that came from winning an earthly race. And then they gave him a garland of leaves to wear as his crown. Paul said that the natural man who runs a race, is running for things that are corruptible. And corruptible is the word we get corruption from. In other words, they're fading. They're dying. They will not last. But the crown we're running for is incorruptible. And so if on the fleshly side, he had all of his needs met, no more taxes, life taken care of, a position of honor and glory, front row seats at everything, and that's on the side that is fading, how much greater must the side be that God is giving us if it's an incorruptible crown. Oh, it's got to be a tremendous thing. And uh, it's got to be something that we don't even begin to understand. In 2 Corinthians, Paul makes this reference that his light affliction works for him an eternal weight of glory. Now, what did he mean by light affliction? 
I mean, the things that he suffered weren't of any consequence. Oh, go read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and read the list of things that he suffered. Nothing you're going through is even close to what Paul suffered. And he looked at all the things that he suffered and he called it a light affliction. A light affliction. Why would he call it a light affliction? He called it a light affliction because he was comparing it to the eternal weight of glory. He's saying what I'm suffering here is, is, is light. It's nothing compared to that. And then other scriptures plainly tell us that the comparison, Romans chapter 8, is, uh, is not even worthy to be made of what we have suffered compared to what we will win. It's an incredible thing. It's corruption versus incorruption. Our crown does not fade away. It lasts forever. Let me just put it to you this way. You would be astonished. Astonished if you knew what God had waiting for those who were faithful to Him. To those who believe Him. To those who follow Him. You'd be astonished to know it. it there's, there's no comparison. Thank you for giving me a like. I appreciate that very much. There's no comparison between these two things. And whatever it is you're dealing with and you're suffering with, have the attitude of always abounding because you have an incorruptible crown waiting for you. You have uh, an exceeding weight of glory. You have far more than anything this world has to offer you. And whatever you're trying to collect down here, remember it's all going to fade. So I want to say, don't invest your time here. Invest it in the kingdom of God. Live a life of always abounding in the work of the Lord and allow God to work in your heart. The second coming of Jesus all through the book of 1 Corinthians. He is coming. When he comes, what he has for us is not worthy to even be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. All right? Now, this is the acrostic that I gave to you. I'm going to give it to you again slowly. You can write it down. Some of you have been taking notes all along. This is about our fourth or fifth week in the book of 1 Corinthians. And we're just now kind of getting through the introduction. But the letter C is a Christ-centered epistle. Remember that the name of Jesus Christ is found all through the book. In fact, the only chapter that doesn't mention Jesus Christ is the love chapter, chapter 13. But God is love and Jesus is God. And so everything about love is true of Jesus. So he's mentioned there as well. Christ-centered epistle. The letter O is the one answer for all of our problems. It is the lordship of Jesus Christ. And if you read the first part of the book, I think ten times he uses the word in the first chapter, the Lord Jesus Christ or the Lord. R stands for the rebuking epistle. There are eight chief things that he's fussing about, Paul is. They wrote him a letter and Paul wrote him a letter back to correct eight different things in the church. And we'll be talking about those in more detail. The letter I stands for the immoral city. The city of Corinth was a harbor town, had harbors on both sides of the isthmus there. And so they had the wickedness of the east and the wickedness of the west coming together, had transient individuals, and then had the temple worship that involved idolatrous and sexual practices that were not frowned upon but were encouraged. And so it was a very immoral city. Letter N stands for the narrow-minded apostle. Apostle Paul said some things in 1 Corinthians that you and I, were they not written in the Bible, would never say today. But the Apostle Paul said them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we'll be seeing those in more detail. And then the letter T stood for the tremendous doctrine. Most of the time when we approach a book and its practicality, and 1 Corinthians is very practical, we skip over the doctrine and get to it. But 1 Corinthians follows Romans, and there are 16 chapters in Romans, 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians. You've got 32 chapters that are just slam full of tremendous doctrine. And you've got to have doctrine upon which to base your practices. Otherwise, your practices are pointless. And uh, then we come to letter H, the high standards the Apostle Paul sets for us. He tells us, be ye followers of me 
as I follow Jesus Christ. How could he say follow me? Because Jesus Christ is the God-man. We cannot attain to that level. But what can we attain to? Oh, the righteousness of the Apostle Paul. And five times in the Scripture, he tells us to follow him. And then the letter I stood for immortal bodies. Not immoral, immortal bodies. How not just our souls live forever, but our bodies do as well. And the Apostle Paul talks about that, and we discussed that last week. And then the three we cover today. The attitude of victory is the A. The N is the negative emphasis. And the S stands for the second coming revelations of Jesus. And so... As you write these things down, that is our introduction. Now let me encourage you, as I have told you every single class, read the book of 1 Corinthians. There are 16 chapters, and you can read 16 chapters in about a half an hour or an hour. It's not very long. I know you got time on your hands, and you should be reading this book. Because when you read it, when I reference something, you'll know what I am talking about. And as you read the book of 1 Corinthians, mark verses that mean something to you. Mark them in your Bible. If you have a Bible you don't like to mark in, get a notebook out and write these verses down. Find some kind of app that you can use, but mark down the verses that mean something to you. Write out what it means to you. Write the date when God gave it to you. And when you go back to those places in Scripture later on in time, you can be refreshed and renewed as you understand and remember what God did for you. Um, as a preacher, I got, I got a lot of Bibles. But my favorite Bible that I have is one that where I went through a difficult time in my life and I wrote a lot of things down as I worked my way through certain passages of Scripture. And when I pick that Bible up for some reason, I don't use it now that much anymore, um, and I open it up, I, I just see and remember times that God dealt with my heart. And some of them even have a little crinkle on the page where, I, where I, a tear would drip down as God... You know what I'm talking about. If you're a child of God, you... Have those times with him. Do that through the book of 1 Corinthians. And then let me give you the indispensable principle of any book of the Bible. You cannot get around this. You need to ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand. He wrote the book. You lack the understanding. He possesses the understanding. And anything that drives you to helpless dependence on the Lord is a good thing. Even the coronavirus, if it brings you to the point of just helplessly trusting God, it's a forward step in your life. Ask God to do that. Pray Ephesians chapter 1 verse 17 and ask God to give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Your eyes naturally have a veil over them. You cannot see the things of God. The natural man cannot grasp these things. Ask God to just take that veil away. Ask him to give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him all right so my mouth is dry from preaching at y'all and there's nobody looking at me so i'm just gonna go ahead and get a drink of water y'all hang on now i'll give you a bird's eye view of the book as a whole and i want to point out these eight main i started to say problems but they're not problems they're enemies in the church at corinth which are also enemies at liberty church or whatever church you might attend and I'm going to give you these eight real quick. not going to get into them in detail, but I do want to talk about them as we move forward. Just kind of our, our overview and our introduction still. These eight chief enemies of the church at Corinth, not problems, they're enemies. Divisions in the church. That spirit of division. We find that almost immediately in chapter 1. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. And uh, while I understand denominational differences that give people the a grasp of what doctrine we hold, when those denominational differences become the source of pride and arrogance among us, we have arrived where the church at first, in First Corinthians, the church at Corinth is, and we're allowing the divisions to separate the body of Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, there are a lot of things that I disagree with some of my brethren on, and they're the finer points of theology, 
But when it comes down to the way to getting saved, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, if we can agree on that, we have something in common, and you are not my enemy, you are my friend. And so as I look at these things and understand that God has people all across the United States, even in different denominations, who see things a little bit differently on some of the finer points, but if they're trusting in Christ as their Savior and not in their own good works to get them to heaven, then they are my brother, and I have got to avoid divisions in the church corporately. I also have to avoid divisions in the church individually. Individually. And what I mean specifically is at Liberty Church. I've got to be careful not to allow my personal preferences to create division instead of unity. And let me tell you something. There's always something that you can find somewhere that doesn't fit the way you want it to be. And you can choose to promote unity. Or you can choose to promote division. And the Apostle Paul is preaching at that. And I promise you when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you're going to hear some more about that again. And then we have personal impurity. Personal impurity. Unfortunately, there's an awful lot of this among churches. You can read some statistics about the amount of immorality and wickedness that exists even in the church of Jesus Christ. And it is a major enemy of the work of God. People, we've got to live clean lives. We've got to do what's right. We've got to honor the Lord in our private life so that God can be glorified. And then we, uh, Paul was dealing with the third one, his personal differences, the enemy of personal differences. What I mean personal as in in between members of the body because Christians were taking other Christians to court, to court. Now, when we get there, I'm going to talk about is it ever all right to take a Christian to court? But just as a general rule, the answer is absolutely not. Paul begins with this phrase, how dare you? Take another Christian to court. Why don't you just suffer the wrong and let God deal with it? That's hard for us to do. We think we've got to bring justice and righteousness in the earth. We can't let anybody get away with something. And God said, let me deal with it. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Let him go. Give it to him. A man, take away your coat. Give him your cloak also. That's the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount. And in the church, people were taking other people to court. You've got to be very, very, very careful about these things. And once we get to that place, we'll discuss it in more detail. Because I do think there are instances for protection and things like that, that some legal actions have to be made. But that is not the rule. That is the exception to the rule. The rule is, I don't take a brother to court. Don't take a brother to court. And then number four, there are marital enemies. Paul is talking about marriage, chapter 7. going to get into these things in some detail. And while I don't have you present with me, let me say it. I know that some of you have brought your children into my class from time to time. Some of it's their choice. Some of it's behavior issues, whatever. I, I don't mind that. But I do want you to understand that I approach this class as an adult class. And there are some things we're going to have to get into in First Corinthians that are adult-oriented. I will be careful to temper my vocabulary and discussion in regards to the audience that is with me. But please be fair to me and allow me to teach the way God leads me to teach. I'll never be vulgar. I'll never be offensive. But I do have to deal with some topics when we get to these chapters about, uh, about marriage. And I hope that you will give me the liberty to do those things. And then number five, we have questionable practices, the false liberty that I have in Jesus Christ, injuring my brother because I'm not careful about his needs. Number six, flat-out disorder in the church in regards to the Lord's Supper, insubordination, these kinds of things. I don't know what was going on in Corinth entirely, but like I said last week, I don't know why anybody would ever name their church Corinth Baptist Church or Corinth Methodist Church or whatever the case may be because there was so much trouble going on here. Number seven, the abuse of spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues. I've had several people ask me about speaking in tongues, and when we get to chapters 
uh, 12, 13, and 14. We will deal with that in detail. And uh, just take some time and just park right there and discuss those things. Speaking of questions, I put out a, a little post last week that if you had any Bible questions, I would take time to answer them. I've had one person send me a question. One person. And I know it's not because all of you know everything. All right? Read your Bible. You'll come up with questions. Send them to me. If I don't know them, I'll find somebody. And I'll take some time to answer them through a video. And then number eight, the false doctrines that were existing in, in Corinth. And remember, these are not problems in the church. They are enemies of the church. And enemies are always rooted in sin. I don't want to necessarily just deal with the enemy. I want to deal with the sin behind the enemy. What do you think the greatest enemy of the church is? What's the greatest enemy? Well, if you'll go in your bathroom, you'll find him or her. Because you have to look in the mirror to see the greatest enemy of the church of God. Candidly speaking, pastors can be the greatest enemies of God's work. We can be the greatest hindrance. Then after pastors, his people... Not the people outside, but within. Oh, we suffer from the outside. People will attack us, persecution, these things, and all those things are coming. But they seek, those things always strengthen the church. The strongest the church has ever been, has ever been, is when people outside have attacked us. Because it draws us together. But what divides us the most, the greatest enemy, is from within. And can I just say it candidly? See, I don't have any real repercussions because none of y'all are looking at me. I can't see any of you. You're just watching the screen. Let me go ahead and give it to you. But there is enough self in you to wreck your church. You can do it. You can wreck Liberty Church or whatever church it is that you attend. There's enough self in you to wreck it. There's enough self in me to wreck it. I can be the greatest enemy of the church. But... Let me give you the theme of 1 Corinthians because it fits right in with these things. The theme of this is, with Jesus Christ as my Lord, we can have victory over every enemy, both corporately and individually. I can always be abounding in the work of the Lord as I yield to the Lordship of Christ. He conquers the enemies in my life. And when he conquers them in my life, he conquers them in my church. And while it's true that I have the ability to wreck and ruin anything that God does, I have that ability. I also can run to my Lord Jesus Christ and Savior, and he can help me overcome these enemies. Now, I just got a couple of minutes left, and I just want to touch on how the church at Corinth got started, its origin. And for that, I'm going to need you to look at Acts chapter 18. Turn over in your copy of the Word of God to Acts chapter 18. you find it here, Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. You can read this story, but Paul is encouraged by the Lord to go to the area of Corinth and minister to the people that are there. And you can read these verses on your own time. Verse 1 just tells us that he left from Athens and came to Corinth, and he found these, these Jews, Aquila and Priscilla, and they had been working as tent makers, and they had some people that they were drawing in, and they reasoned with people in the Sabbath, and that's how this church began. Let me remind you of how wicked Corinth was. How desperately wicked. As bad as you think our day and age is, it's nothing compared to Corinth. Where relations with temple prostitutes were the norm of, of worship. And you lived in a port town with transient individuals who didn't care how they acted because they were leaving in a few days anyway. That's where God wanted Paul to start a church. He was not afraid to attack the strongholds of Satan. 
Let me just ask you personally. Are you doing anything to attack the strongholds of Satan? I'm reminded, I, I used to have a bus route, and, and, and I'd pick up kids on a van and a bus and would take them to church. And I remember I was in a neighborhood I'd never been in before. I was knocking on doors and inviting people to church, and I saw this home. Had beat up cars all in the yard. Grass was about waist high. Had a Confederate flag, a tattered Confederate flag hanging from the flagpole. The house was in disrepair and ruin. And there were about four or five pit bulls and German shepherds on logging chains, chained at various places throughout the yard. And when I went down the road knocking on this door and this house was next, I looked at it and said, I'm not going there. And I skipped that house. And I went around and knocked. The next week I came by and I said, mm, I'm not going to that door. I'm not, I'm not getting shot. I got a family to take care of. And uh, Zach was just a little boy at that time. I had to take care of him. And I'm not going to that door. But it just would, God wouldn't let me forget it. And so the, about the third time I came by, I said, I'm going. I don't care what happens to me. And so I began to walk up the driveway and the dogs just ran at me. But thankfully, their chain stopped with about this much distance for me to be able to get through and they couldn't touch me. And I knocked on the door and immediately the people invited me in. As I sat down on the couch, I had on a light pair of khakis because I could watch the fleas playing baseball on my legs on the couch, just jumping on and off of me while I was talking. And... There were white supremacist posters and immoral stuff on the walls. And all the kids had their heads shaved, like looked like a bunch of skinheads. I don't know how else to say it. But I began to talk to them about the Lord. And they said, we'll come to church Sunday. And they did. And one of the boys got saved. And another boy got saved. And then the daddy said, God is right, life right with God. And God did some great things through that family. And I don't know how all of that played out over time because I left that area. It's up near the Outer Banks of Virginia Beach and that area over there. But I just want to point out that sometimes God will push you not to take the easy way, but to deal with these strongholds of Satan. The strongholds of where wickedness abounds. He wants his people to go there because who needs the gospel more than that? Look in chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. For I have much people in this city. What did God mean when he said he had much people in Corinth? Did he mean there were a whole lot of Christians there? Maybe. But that's not how I take it. I take it as this. God said, go preach in Corinth. I'll protect you because there's a lot of people who will respond to the gospel that I'm calling to myself in that city and I need somebody to go win them. Even in a wicked place like that, Paul said, God told Paul, I have much people there. And I would just remind you that whatever it is that you're dealing with, wherever God places you, if you're working in a terrible environment, God might have many people there and you're the light, you're the one. They can win them. Don't be afraid to take the gospel to the very strongholds of Satan. The next time we're together, we're going to talk a little bit more about the origin of the church and what that means in the Corinth and what that means to us in light of the New Testament. And then some of the intellectualism that went on in Corinth and how that does ne- that never leads a nation to morality. It always seems to lead to immorality.